Our subject for tonight is redemption. Uh, we've been following through the key doctrines of the Christian gospel book in Manchester, and we're into the chapter that's entitled Redemption. Uh, so we're going to take a reading. Uh, so this talk will supplement what's in the book. Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles there, um, turn to Second Samuel chapter 7. And we're going to start a reading from verse 22 while you're uh, making your way there. This is David's, King David's response to God, who has made him a promise that he will always have one of his descendants sitting on the throne over God's people, Israel. So part of David's response to God's promise and God's grace is this. Verse 22, he says, how great you are, sovereign Lord. There was no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your own people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. This is probably the greatest image we have in the scriptures of what redemption is. It's related to the exodus, the release of God's people Israel from the slavery that they found themselves in in Egypt. And here is David, uh, hundreds of years later, looking back to that event and seeing that God has done great things in bringing a people to himself, having redeemed them, is the language he uses, from the slavery of Egypt, and having redeemed them that they might be his very own, and that he would be their God. So that's the image of redemption that really flows throughout the majority of scripture. This notion of uh, a price being paid, usually, a price being paid to secure a person or an animal or a belonging uh, for yourself. In this case, we see that the ultimate redeemer or the ultimate picture of redemption is God bringing a people to himself. Paul picks up on this in the New Testament as well. And he, when he speaks about redemption, quite often has in mind uh, what would have happened in the marketplaces where slaves would have been bought and sold. And a price would be paid by someone that they might have a slave and the ownership of that person would transfer from one person to the other. And slavery was a massive thing in, um, in the Roman Empire at that time. Some have said that there were two million out of the six million uh, people who lived in Italy would have been slaves of one form or another. Uh, the whole system relied on people who belonged to someone else. But here we have Israel as the reminder that Israel had become slaves in Egypt and they had no power in themselves or capacity to extricate themselves, to get themselves released from their slavery. So God intervenes and in his grace and in his mercy and in his purposes of love for his people and also for the glory of his own name, i.e. this is who God is. He brings the people out 
and it's not without cost. There is a cost. There were animals, those lambs that were taken and they were sacrificed and the blood that was taken from those animals was put around the doors. And as the agent of, of God's wrath went through um, the nation of Egypt and God had said the firstborn in the families uh, would, be, would be killed. The blood marked out those who had put their faith in what God had promised that he would bring them out and that he would protect his people. And they put that blood around the doorpost. And as the angel of the Lord went through the land, that marked them out as God's people. And the judgment of God did not come on them. So there was a cost and it was a cost in the sacrifice of animals. You know, that was the basis for um, God starting with his people, Israel constituting them as a nation. In Exodus chapter 20, we find uh, the people of Israel have traveled, guided by God, to Mount Sinai. And God is beginning to give them instructions as to how they're to live as his people. Remember, he's brought them out, as David says, um, to make a name for himself and that they would be his people and he would be their God. He then gives them at Mount Sinai the instructions as to what that sort of life would mean as a people who were now God's people. They no longer belonged to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They were now God's people. So they come under a completely different rule. And God gives his rules to his people at Mount Sinai. And we know the, the fundamental basis of those is the Ten Commandments. Now, if you're reading in Exodus chapter 20, God says there, I am the Lord, your God. This is just before he launches into the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he goes into the Ten Commandments that are to govern their lives as individuals and together as God's people. So God had brought this people out. The ownership, in a sense of them, was transferred from being owned by Pharaoh so now they were God's people. He owned them and his glory was being displayed in the power and the majesty and what he had done in bringing this people to himself. And now he says, this is how you're to live. I've brought you to myself. You're my people. I am your God. This is how you're to live. Let's go to uh, the New Testament, Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three, bringing it to uh, into the New Testament, that image of God bringing his people out and bringing them to the place where they would be his people and he would be their God, um, that keeps getting repeated throughout the Bible. When we come to Romans chapter 3, um, Paul has in mind what I've already mentioned about uh, redemption of a slave in the marketplace. And he's thinking of, of a slave who is the possession of one person and then another will come and pay a price and the transfer of ownership occurs. Or in some cases, if there was a magnanimous um, benefactor would come and pay a price to give freedom to that slave. Let's read in Romans chapter three and verses 23 onwards. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace 
through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Leave our reading there. Here we come into the New Testament and Paul picks up on this theme of redemption. And he speaks of it as relating to God's people today and how God's redemption for his people today came by Christ Jesus. Now, this is a redemption that's even greater than what God achieved for Israel when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt to bring them out that they would be his people, his possession, and that they would own him as their God. Here is something else. Paul is revealing to us something that he knows Jesus Christ has come to do. That Christ has come to pay a price that God might have a people today for himself who are prepared and delight to say that God is our God, who are owned by God rather than being owned by their slave owner. And the slave owner of every person, Paul says, is sin. All have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, he's maybe got in mind what Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 34, where Jesus was talking with the people one day, and he says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. So our very sin nature is something that enslaves us. And it means that we are caught up in the system where we cannot do anything but sin. And sin has its consequences and sin must be punished by God. Um, so we, by our very nature, are enslaved to sin. Jesus went on in John chapter 8 and in verse 44, he actually said to the religious leaders, he says, you, you, you belong to your father, the devil. Uh, because you want to carry out your father's desire. There's this sense of being slaves to sin, owned by the sin that is in us. And this notion as well that the devil or, or Satan, the, the adversary of God and the adversary of God's people, is there in the background, um, assisting this slavery to be something that cannot be broken free from. One author has said that Satan has, his, has humanity in his grasp through the ideas, beliefs, and bastions of wickedness he has developed throughout history. And he intends to keep them there. He works in the realm of the heart and ideas, in their individual as well as social forms, to control the major structures and processes of human life on earth. That's what Satan and his his helpers are up to working in a system that just fuels our own sinful nature and it's something that we cannot break free from ourselves god says that to us that there's nothing we can do that's ever good enough psalm 49 verse 7 makes the case that there's no price could ever be paid for god to to be in charge of our own lives we're not in charge of our own lives. As sinners, we're ruled by sin, slaves to sin. But God has come that he might bring a people to himself, rescue them out of that, 
that they might be for his praise, for the glory of his name, and that they might live knowing that he owns them and that he is their God. And it says the redemption came, Paul says, the redemption came by Christ Jesus. You know, back in uh, another occasion in the Lord Jesus's life, as he was talking with his disciples, he said that the son of man, a name he used for himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here was the price that would be paid so that this release from the slavery to sin could come to those people whom God has set his love on from all eternity. It would become reality through Christ Jesus. The redemption of God came through Christ Jesus, securing a people for his praise and his glory. So Paul in another place in Ephesians chapter one and verse seven says that in him and writing to Christians, he says in him, we have redemption through his blood, Jesus's blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. The reality of sin is that God must punish it as a, as a holy God. But God is prepared and from all eternity has been prepared. And in a sense has always had in mind that this is a done deal, that he would pay the price himself. That individuals and a people would be brought out of the slavery to sin and brought in to the slavery to righteousness and to slavery to God, to become his people into the greatest of freedoms. And he would do that through the giving of his son. I must say one thing here. The redemption price was not something that was paid to the devil or to Satan. That's not it at all. Satan is there in the background uh, working in, in cultural systems and so on. And But we, by nature, are sinners, all of us. God satisfied himself. He was satisfying himself with regards to the just necessity for justice to be done, that sin must be punished and the wrath of God must, must come against sinners because they are enemies of God and it is an affront to his nature and his purity and his holiness. But yet God has provided one, his own son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he, in the perfection of his life, never doing any sin, had come knowing that he would then step forward and be able to pay the price. This was God working to bring about a glorious redemption, a price paid. And let's not think about it this way either, that Jesus and somehow was trying to placate uh, an angry father against us. That's not it at all. This was God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Spirit working together in absolute unity. This plan of redemption to to ensure that God was satisfied with regards to his wrath against sin. And when Jesus gave himself and he was crucified on the cross, we're told that he suffered for our sins. He paid the price in our place so that a people might be freed from the slavery of sin, knowing forgiveness 
Ephesians 1 verse 7, and stepping into the freedom of the children of God, as it's called. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, favorite verses of mine, it says that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's in Christ Jesus that we have and know redemption, that the price has been paid, and that we have this place in God's eternal kingdom. And that would only be possible if the crucified Lord Jesus Christ who died was alive, and he is. He's the one who was raised from the dead to show that God had defeated the effects of sin, death. He had been satisfied in his son who in his perfection had offered himself. He paid that ransom price and was raised so that we might be just before God by faith in what Jesus has done to satisfy God and to bring forgiveness to us. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6. Verses 17 and 18, he says, thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin. So he's writing to Christians who've put their faith and their trust in the promises of God that are found in the person of Jesus Christ. The price paid to ransom a people, redeem them for God's glory. He says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. God calls those he redeems in Christ Jesus into a life of allegiance to him. You have been set free from sin, Paul says, and have become slaves to righteousness. This is a wonderful reality, isn't it? That God has taken us to be his own. We're no longer slaves sold un under sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter seven. We're no longer under that wicked and brutal um, ownership, but rather we're brought into the ownership of God who is good and perfect in everything he has ever done and ever will do because God is God. Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, Paul writes, Romans 6.22, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. You know, for God to come himself in the person of his son who took on humanity, Jesus Christ, that he might satisfy himself with regards to our sin so that the price would be paid that would satisfy him, that would bring forgiveness to us. And then to bring this people out is a glorious truth of the scriptures. That's what redemption is. God obtaining for himself a people a possession for his praise and his glory, to make a name for himself. And we are the beneficiaries, of course, of that that God has done. You know, the great thing is that this redemption that God has brought about, that has come through Christ Jesus, it's an eternal redemption. We read that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, where it says that Jesus um, says he entered heaven with his own blood. It meant that he was able to go into the very presence of God as a consequence of his sacrifice and say, this sacrifice is entirely satisfying for you, God. 
God is satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. He went into the, he entered the most holy place once for all with his own blood, obtaining eternal redemption. That blood, that sacrifice of Christ that stands for eternity as the focal point of history and the focal point of eternity, that is what secures our redemption. That, that is what secures God's ownership of us and our ability to say that he is our God. It's eternal and that will never be overturned. It's in heaven because that's where Christ is. So it's untouchable. And the fullness of what it means to be God's people, his possession is yet to be fully realized. Paul in Romans 8 speaks about the redemption of our bodies. And he's talking about how we're, we're going to know the fullness of the escape from sinfulness and this sinful world. And that's coming in a future day. It's been promised. And when the Lord comes for his own people, those he has secured at the cost of his own life, the fullness of the redemption will be known by us and will be released into the freedom of the children of God, God's people for eternity. In Exodus chapter 15, just to conclude, in Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel stood on the other shore of the Red Sea and they washed, uh, they watched as Pharaoh and his army uh, were overthrown as the sea came back in over them and they were washed up on the shore and they were defeated. God had defeated the enemy. Their old slave owner, their old slave master was gone. They were now God's people. They sang a song of praise to God. And there's one little section, Exodus 15 and verse 13, where Moses leads the people and they say, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Here were the people having been set free and embarking on a new life under new ownership. And here was this confidence that Moses had as he sang with the people, that the people that the Lord had redeemed with strength would be brought to the place of God's dwelling. And that's where God's people today have the privilege to come and will know that in fullest measure in a day yet future. When it says in Revelation 21, 22, that God's dwelling is with us. What a glorious prospect lies ahead. I just want to finish with the, the reading of Titus chapter two. Titus chapter two. And we'll just let the text speak for itself. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good 
If you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer your own. You belong to God. And with that comes the greatest opportunity to live a life that brings glory to God. And he delights in that when he sees his redeemed people living that way for the glory of his name. He's paid the price for you. Have you put your trust in him?